Tortoise. In this conversation, Andrew Marr, a presenter for LBC and the political editor of The New Statesman, speaks to four leading figures in the fight against Russian aggression, both at home and abroad. They discuss Alexei Navalny's imprisonment, the state of the war on Ukraine, and how Russians are continuing to get information beyond state propaganda. I'm here under false pretenses. I am not an investigative journalist, though I have interviewed Putin and Medvedev and a series of incredibly brave Russian opposition politicians and dissidents. But I'm very, very glad to say that we have the key people here. If there is a dark roll call of people who have bravely and consistently challenged Putin's narrative, they are sitting here on the stage today. Uh, you saw, uh, I hope, a little bit of that um, Navalny documentary, which for me was the standout television moment of the last year. That extraordinary moment when Navalny phones the people who had tried to kill him and then reveals who he is. Now, we have, you, you, you saw um, both Maria um, Poschik and um, her collaborator who made these incredible films, and they're both on the stage with me now. Sorry, uh, Christo Grausef, I beg your pardon, Christo. Christo and Maria, and we're going to hear from them as well. Many of you know Bill Browder at the end there. He has gone from being the biggest portfolio investor in Russia to... Uh, Putin's enemy number one, he's been called, which is quite a compliment, Bill. Great to have you here. Um, and as well, we've got somebody, uh, Michael Ziger, Mikhail, Mikhail Ziger, who is the former editor-in-chief of an independent TV channel, Rain, which was thrown out of Russia and had to keep trying to get messages and the truth back to the Russian population from outside. So four really important and different perspectives here today. Um, let me start with you, Maria. So... You not only uh, worked for Navalny, he's a friend of yours, Alexei Navalny. Can I just start by asking, because I'm sure we're all wondering this question, how he is right now, when you last heard from him, and how you think he's doing? Um, I wish we could start on a more cheerful note, really. Well, we can't, yeah. um, well he, he is not well. He's in prison. It's been more than two years. He has been kept in a solitary confinement for um, over six months. Um, they are torturing him. They are underfeeding him. They are applying any sorts of all other sorts of psychological pressure on him. He hasn't seen or spoken to his family in over a year, um, and it's a complete and total isolation um, that he that either he is dealing with. Um, his health is um, not great, uh, but his his spirits are high. His spirits are high. It's quite extraordinary, Maria, that in this circumstance, he's able to get messages out. You know, you see uh, Twitter messages from him and other messages on social media. It's as if Solzhenitsyn, back in the old days, was able to send letters to the West. How is that possible? Well, I wouldn't want to go into very fine detail of that because we're very, we're very cautious that yeah. this channel might be interrupted. But um, in, in broad, broad strokes, um, Navalny is allowed to see his lawyers because he's constantly being sued by the Russian government for new things. Now, this time, it's like they're about to start a new case um, against our organization for extremism and terrorism. So that means that Navalny is being brought to court regularly via video link. It means that his lawyers are allowed to see him and study the case materials together. So that allows for a little bit of communication to, to, to pass through um, the uh, prison walls. And um, also, um, Russian prisons are weirdly 
digitally advanced and there is like an online thing when you can actually send a letter to a prisoner so 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 we we, we use that quite a bit as well how extraordinary there's no doubt that Navalny across the world must be one of the bravest people in the world do you think it's because his name is spoken so constantly in the west that's kept him alive because Putin I'm quite sure would like to kill him um he is definitely the bravest person I've ever met in my life um and I think that well what you mentioned that's our plan that's our calculation we we, we hope that uh, we can support him and his decision by keeping his name in in, in the spotlight um, as much as possible. This is why there is a film that just won a BAFTA and an Oscar. This is why we um, give interviews, do shows, run our YouTube channels, because we want to increase the value of Navalny's life. We want to increase the cost that Putin might pay if he decides to kill Navalny again, because let's face it, last time he tried it, he embarrassed himself quite, quite a bit. He certainly did, and we'll come on to that later on. But Maria, you've done, I think, 200 investigations About so that. far. It's an extraordinary record. And one of the biggest was Putin's Palace, which was this film. I don't know if anyone here has seen it. I hope you have, which went absolutely viral across Russia, had an enormous impact. So just tell me, first of all, tell us all a little bit about the film and why you think it had the impact it did. Well, the film is exactly what it says on the label. It is about Putin's palace. Um, we were leaked um, floor plans and photographs of this place um, um, uh, on the Black Sea shore near Sochi, um, a mysterious, ginormous palace, the size of Buckingham Palace, perhaps, that had no owner, apparently. So we managed to prove that this very gigantic, random house uh, surrounded by... Um, vineyards and um, fields and gardens and, and all sorts of things. We, we managed to prove that it belongs to Putin. And um, the film was so successful, it, um, it got, I think it acquired about 120 million views on YouTube. I think because it had a very good overview of where Putin started and where he ended like for, for, for that day, for um, early 2021. It showed his entire past from a very small... Um, KGB man who, who who wasn't any special, who hasn't had anything, you know, going about him, um, and how he managed to acquire so much power, and how he managed to become a dictator eventually. Um, so I do recommend to watch to watch this investigation to, to, for everybody. It's, it's quite fun, and um, it's definitely a good watch. It's even it's it's a wonderful watch, and of course, what it shows is even the most nationalist and patriotic Russians don't like the idea that the man who runs the country is a thief and a criminal. Um, let's let's turn to you, Christo, because you're the lead Russia investigator for Bellingcat, which has done, I think, more than any intelligence agency around the world to uncover what's really going on in Putin's Russia. Before we start, just explain to people who might not know a little bit about Bellingcat. Bellingcat is an open source investigation uh, collective or a platform. It was launched in 2014 by Elliot Higgins, a uh, um, uh, UK uh, citizen who launched it with the idea to gather like-minded people who are not necessarily professional journalists, but who have a passion for open source investigations, looking for little clues uh, in photographs that are posted on Twitter or on Facebook and, and finding pieces of shrapnel that can prove the origin, the provenance of a particular weapon in the Syrian war. That's how actually Elliot started working in this area. Um, and or uh, photographs of soldiers, Russian soldiers, who happen to post 
selfies on the way to the Ukrainian border in 2014, which became the basis of the first major investigation of Bellingcat in 2014 that proved who shot down MH17, the Malaysian airliner shot down over recent Ukraine. Um, the who shot it is, the answer is um, soldiers from the Russian 53rd Brigade. So that's the first big investigation. Over the years, we've done a lot more. The one, one that a lot of people here will know about, of course, is the Skripal investigation. Every single front page in the UK followed you. Um, just tell us again, because I think you guys are the future of investigative journalism in many ways, but how you, got, how you started on that story. Well, uh, that story actually started with a previous story, because each of the investigations we've done builds on knowledge about how the Russian secret <laughs> services operate that we've acquired from previous investigations. So. In 2017, I investigated the attempted coup by Russia's military intelligence in Montenegro, a tiny republic. And I discovered a little bit of clues as to how they hide their identities, tradecraft, passport numbers. And that came very handy in 2018 when uh, the, UK, the Met Police announced that somebody poisoned uh, Sergei Skripal and his daughter. And then we started looking for to prove or disprove the hypothesis that it's the Russian military intelligence. And we found the same sequence of passports that have been used for the cover identities in Montenegro were used here for two travelers who came to the UK, the famous Salisbury spire chasers, the, the, the tourists. And that allowed us to look for other people who may have had passports from the same range. We found a third person who came here. Uh, and then we found out who they really were. It's a long investigation that, I mean, people have read, I guess, but it's one of the most fascinating ones for me. They were, they're an extraordinary outfit, Bellingcat. I interviewed Vladimir Karamurza, who's one of those very, very brave uh, opposition politicians, now sentenced to 25 years in jail in Russia, and we'll talk a bit more about him in a moment. But I asked him about how he knew that it was the FSB who tried to poison him, not once but twice. And Bellingcat had chased these people down using CCTV camera in Russian stations, uh, accessing uh, number plates of cars, using internal FSB sources, an absolutely extraordinary piece of work. Christo, very briefly, what are you working on now? I would... I would not exaggerate if I say that there's at least 100 open investigations at any given time. Uh, they're all in a folder on my computer that started with the name of one particular investigation, and now it has about 500 subfolders. So I can't tell you what will drop first, but something will drop in a week or so. Very, very. Okay, we're looking forward to that. Um, now, this is a well-organized event, as you can tell, because Maria and Christo are sitting next to each other, and they collaborated very closely on what I've said is, for me, the documentary of the year, and probably of many, many years, Navalny. Um, it is, as I say, they, they follow Navalny going back to Russia, because like Karamurza, he says, I'm a Russian, I'm not going to let these sods take over my country, and therefore I go back and I fight. But of course, they tried to kill him. And there is a moment in the film when Navalny, posing as a Russian general, uh, fools the, the, mur the attempted murderers into giving, uh, giving full access to what they were trying to do. It is an absolutely jaw-dropping moment. Maria, what was going through your head at that moment? It took us a while to process it. And I think it went through stages. So first, 
the, the initial reaction was that there were obviously more moments where where Christo is is, is just essentially equally shocked as I am. He's holding his head, um, and it goes like this for the first um, ten minutes. Perhaps we, we can't believe what's happening. It's the peak of our investigative careers for sure. And then you know another ten minutes goes well goes by. He keeps talking. And it's like 30 minutes into the call and, you know, Krista's already going to get a coffee, you know, like, <laughs> I'm like, you know, doing something with my phone, you know, like doodling on a piece of paper. It's been 50 minutes, 50 minutes Navalny spoke to his um, very own uh, murderer, to, to the guy who, who's part of that FSB poisoning kill team. And at the very end, like, we got bored. I, 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 I swear to God, we were telling Navalny to cut it short. <laughs> <laughs> We have other things to do. It's like, you know, it's getting repetitive. Like, he just keeps saying and saying and explaining how exactly they tried to kill him. And um, it, it, obviously, it felt absolutely surreal when we hung up the phone. Um, I was frozen for quite a while, and we had a conversation with Christo, uh, a little bit of a depressing conversation, saying that, okay, like, life will never get as good again. Like, well, I think... <laughs> So these are the guys who tell the rest of us what's going on in Russia and have found new and extraordinary ways to do that. But there's still the question of what the Russians themselves actually know, what they understand about this appalling aggressive war, what's really happening inside the Kremlin and the rest of it. And so I'm now going to turn to Mikhail, because Mikhail, as he's an author, of course, and former editor-in-chief of a very important independent Russian TV company, Rain which was forced out of Russia for obvious reasons, telling the truth, and had to work from outside. And Mikhail, my first question to you is, there are lots of journalistic sources starting to become stronger and stronger, giving us an insight into what's going on in Putin's Russia. How can you get the message through to ordinary Russians? Well, that's, <clears throat> thank you, and that's a very good question. And actually, it consists of two parts. Because first, yes, we need to think about the methods how, how Russian media in exile can get through, can uh, find the audience, and like, can um, broadcast their message. And it's obvious, yeah, we've, uh, we've got YouTube so far, and that's the most important uh, platform for you, YouTube for is Russian the biggest media. one, is yeah, it? Yeah, that's, that, that's the, the most important platform for uh, anti-corruption foundation of, uh, of Maria and Alexei Navalny. That's the most important platform for uh, the TV channel I used to be founding editor-in-chief. Um, that's the only platform for a lot of journalists abroad. Um, yes, uh, there are Telegram channels, there are a lot of different um, important uh, digital media platforms to try to get through. Uh, we are all waiting uh, for YouTube to be blocked, and yes, it's gonna happen. And, uh, and that means that we need to invent new genres. We, ne we need to, uh, to try to think how to repack uh, all the long reads, all the traditional articles, all the um, pieces of investigative uh, journalism to get through. At the same time, the second problem is that uh, a lot of people in Russia are not ready to receive that message, are not reading, or at least they know we know that, that 200, uh, correct me, 200 million viewers watched uh, the, yeah. the, the YouTube documentary uh, about uh, Putin's palace. Um, are they uprising against the war? No, they know that, that Putin's regime is corrupted. At the same time, somehow they are 
brainwashed. Yeah, it's still inside the, the, the official narrative. I think almost as many people watch that documentary as live in Russia. So that's a lot of, a lot of Russians. And yet the message isn't yet coming through. Can I ask, um, are you still in contact with a lot of people in Russia who are feeding back information about what's going on? Yes, I, yes, I am. I'm, what's going uh, on? Um, no, I'm, um, several years ago, um, I, uh, I wrote a book called All the Kremlin's Men. That is a history uh, of what went wrong and uh, how Putin's inner circle um, is, ha has been transforming him and his policy, uh, including his policy towards Ukraine. Um, and it's, it's very interesting that this year, this book has become a bestseller again. And it was sold in all the Russian, uh, in most of Russian bookstores, uh, like a number one bestseller, after, uh, seven years after it was published for the first time. That means that a lot of people are interested. And it, it's very interesting that a lot of my sources I haven't been in touch with for, for several years. Are, they are back to me. They want to talk. They are ready to talk they, because they hate the situation. They, mm, they are very sorry about what, has, what is happening to them. They are uh, very open uh, in complaining about, um, for example, yeah, yeah, they are complaining about Putin. They are complaining about the West that is so, um, so unjust for them. Mm -hmm. A lot of people wanted, uh, I'm, I'm speaking not about bureaucrats, but mostly about uh, businessmen, for, for example. A lot of people wanted to leave Russia, to start a um, new life, maybe to, to, um, to sponsor some, uh, anti-Putin projects, but uh, they they uh, they fa they were facing, if not sanctions, but their bank accounts were blocked. So n now we have very very strange situation when when a lot of people are coming back to a, a lot of people who were opposing the war from the beginning uh, and who wanted to fight the regime are coming back and they are uh, taking their money from the bank accounts in the West uh, back to Putin's hands and they they have to. Or at least that's the way how, how they mm. describe it. They are forced to go back and they are forced to make business in Russia. They are forced to live there and be silent and um, if not support the war, but uh, tolerate the war. Mikhail, can I ask you, um, we saw yesterday that rather extraordinary Victory Day parade in Moscow, much thinner than usual. Uh, there were great big lumbering ballistic missiles, but a strange shortage of modern tanks, which I think the Ukrainians might have had something to do with. Uh, but it was a very strange thing, but we got a familiar anti-Western rant. Russia is now at war, not with Ukraine, but with the entire West. And perhaps worryingly, there are Western voices saying exactly the same thing in reverse. How fragile do you think the Putin regime is now? You know, I'm, I'll try to disillusion you. I think that it's not really fragile. Uh, to my mind, it's more or less stable. To my mind, it's, uh, mm, Putin's regime can collapse within weeks, but more likely uh, it's going to collapse within years. Because for many years, Putin has been picking the least brave and the least ambitious people. And his inner circle is a mixture of uh, the most loyal and the most mediocre people. And yes, the brainwashing machine was very effective. They brought Russia to the moment when a lot of people know about the, uh, about the corruption, 
but they are brainwashed about Russian history and his obsession about Russian history mm. and the way how Russian history was forged and was fa uh, falsified by, by him uh, impressed a lot of people. That's, by the way, I've, I've just finished my, my new book that is called War and Punishment. And that's, that, that's, a his, that's an investigation how, how Russian history was, was uh, manipulated right. by, by Putin and, and his people. It's going to be published in, in July. And that's, that's, it tells the, the story how a lot of people became zo zombified and they are yeah. not willing to perceive the fact that, that Putin's war is the war against themselves, against Russian people. Prepare for a long war, Mikhail. I look forward to that very much. Do come on to LPC and talk about it when you publish. Now then, a lot of people here will know Bill Browder, famous guy around the world. Bill, you are public enemy number one as far as Putin is concerned. Just give us an insight into how you achieved that remarkable position. Well, I, I should clarify that um, I, at one time I was Putin's enemy number one, but we, I think uh, we can all agree that Zelensky is his enemy number one. And, okay, right. And I think that Alexei Navalny and Vladimir Karamurza are probably in the number two slot right now, but um, I'm somewhere in the sort of top ten. So um, <laughs> the unforgivable thing that I did was um, my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, uncovered a $230 million uh, Russian government corruption scheme in 2008. Uh, testified against uh, the the people involved and was subsequently arrested, tortured for 358 days, and murdered. And um, since his murder in 2009, um, I've given up my life as a businessman, and I've spent the last um, 13 years now going after the people who killed him to make sure they face justice. And that's led to the Magnitsky Act, named after Sergei, which freezes the assets and bans the visas of human rights violators and kleptocrats in Russia and around the world. And Putin is a human rights violator, he's a kleptocrat, and he has a lot of money, as, um, as our colleagues have exposed around the world. And so for him, and I should say he values money more than human life, and so for him, the, uh, the, uh, the idea that his money could be frozen is, is an existential threat. And so since that has happened, he's come after me. Um, as I um, got this Magnitsky Act, 35 of them passed around the world, He's also gone after my good friend, Vladimir Karamurza, who, who accompanied me at parliaments and governments around the world. Uh, I've been sentenced to 18 years in absentia in a Russian prison. They've come after me with uh, eight Interpol arrest warrants, death threats, kidnapping threats, all sorts of nastiness. My friend Vladimir, um, uh, was, was they poisoned him twice in 2015 and 2017. Christo discovered the people who, who, who poisoned him, which were the same people who, who poisoned Alexei Navalny. Um, and then Vladimir went back to Moscow in, um, at the beginning of the war last year um, in the same way as Alexei Navalny went back. And mm. um, knowing that something terrible could happen to him, I, I was having dinner with him three nights before he went back. And I said, please, please, please don't go back. He said, how can I not go back and ask people to stand up to this terrible, murderous war mm. uh, if I'm afraid to go back to my own country? He went back. He was arrested um, after giving an interview to CNN calling Putin a war criminal and a murderer. And then they filed charges after charges after charges, and he was sentenced a couple weeks ago to 25 years in prison. He's the longest-serving, at the moment, political prisoner in Russia. Um, I can remember vividly interviewing him about those poisonings, and at the end of the interview, saying to him when it was all over, so what are you going, going to do now, Vladimir? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm on my way to Heathrow. And I said, why are you going to Heathrow? He said, because I'm flying back to Russia. And I said, you must be insane. They'll throw you into jail. And he said, yes, probably. 
And I said, so why are you going back? And if you forgive the, the word, he said, because I'm not going to let these fuckers take over my country. A really, really brave guy. Um, Bill, we're already running out of time, and as a broadcast journalist, I understand what that means. So briefly, if you don't mind, how effective have sanctions been? We know that Magnitsky Act has infuriated Putin, but overall, have they been in any way effective? Yes, very effective, very effective. And, and don't, don't believe all the hype that comes out of Russia. They're saying, doesn't touch us, our economy is great, don't even worry about it. Um, every oligarch who's been sanctioned is squirming right now. And, and, and one of the big problems with Russia is that the, the money is so concentrated in such a few people's hands that if you go after those people, it really affects Putin and it affects those people. They're squirming, their central bank reserves, $350 billion of central bank reserves are frozen. They can't get ball bearings to make tanks. It's devastating in every possible way, the Russian economy. There's one huge, huge gaping hole, though, that still exists, which is as long as Russia can sell oil and gas and aluminum to the West and get hard currency, they can pay for bombs and, and fund their military okay. to kill Ukrainians. And we have to, that, that's the, the final missing link, is how do you prevent Russia from selling oil anywhere in the world? Very important question. We are out of time. Uh, thank you to four very, very brave and extraordinary individuals for sharing their time with you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to Truth Tellers from Tortoise Media in partnership with the Sahari Evans Global Summit in Investigative Journalism, Tina Brown Media, Reuters and Durham University. Tortoise is a newsroom dedicated to slow news and to support investigative journalism, you can join Tortoise as a member by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash slowdown. Tortoise. 